so glad you're with us today. I'm your host, Chase Davis. And today's going to be a special episode. We're going to be talking about a variety of issues, uh, but this is going to be the conclusion of season one. We're going to launch season two here in January, February of next year. And I'm really excited for next season. Next season is going to be a blast because we're going to be having Acts 29 pastors uh, network I'm a part of. And we're going to be having several pastors from the network who have done some PhD work. Um, there's a lot. And so we're going to be able to fill up, I think, in all of next season, as long as people are available uh, with with those kind of interviews. And so I'm really excited about interviewing some other pastors who are passionate about intellectual engagement, uh, thinking deeply and theologically, um, and have done some, some work uh, on a particular topic and a really kind of a deep dive on that topic. So be sure to subscribe uh, whenever this launches. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow on Facebook or Instagram at Foolproof Theology. And we'll make sure to keep you up to date with what is coming. So today's episode is going to be unique because we're going to be summarizing some of the things that I've been learning. Um, part of the reason I started this podcast was really for myself um, to have conversations with people about stuff I think is important. And really, I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning. I love having conversations with people. I think having conversations is a great way to learn. Um, and so I started this to have conversations with people about issues that are going on in our society from a theological and biblical place. And so I wanted to talk to some experts on different issues related to missional, missiology, um, race, and culture. Um, we talked with uh, someone about the model minority myth amongst the Asian community. And so I just try to take a deep dive on different topics with people who are doing research from a Christian perspective on these issues. Uh, one of the main things that we've been focusing on in this season one has been looking at church history to really understand uh, what's going on in society. Uh, a great example was an episode where we uh, talked about Paul Outhouse, a German theologian who actually sided with the Nazis um, and right before World War II into World War II. And the, the kind of goal in that was to look at how he made the conclusions he made to side with that um, you know, group, the evil group, Nazis, um, and, and how he concluded that that was a wise decision. And the hope in doing that was to really help us think as Christians where we might be overlooking or, uh, or overstepping and, and aligning with movements or ideologies or people that maybe we should really reconsider and give a second glance. And so this idea of kind of engagement from a historical perspective is something I'm really passionate about. And it really brings us into the first topic I want to discuss today, which is the concept of missional. Missional is kind of a buzzword that's been going around in the last 20 years in kind of Christian literature. Um, it came onto the scene in the 90s, uh, mainly as like a, a concept of study for, by Daryl Guter and others. And it's really taken off since then. The seeker-sensitive movement was a uh, ecclesial kind of perspective uh, started, really highlighted by Willow Creek, um, and kind of that movement to really make church about reaching people where they were at. So we're going to meet in a movie theater, we're going to do things that make sense to people, we're going to remove offensive language, uh, the cross, things from our church services that aren't essential, or at least that's how the perception was, in order to engage the world with the gospel. Um, missional came along right in, right in around the same time of, as like emergent and emerging. Those are two different uh, movements. But missional was this concept of how can we engage a post-Christian world with the gospel? And so if you go back to a previous episode with uh, with a professor from TEDS, Dr. David Gustafson, um, we discussed 
where this idea of missional came from. And we really looked at kind of the history there. And so when I say missional, I want to describe for you what I mean when I say missional. When I say missional, I'm a student of Denver Seminary and, and kind of a Tim Keller uh, reader, or at least I have been historically. And so when we talk, when I use the word missional in conversation, I typically mean engaging the world with the gospel. How do I engage the world with the gospel? Um, it's it's like thinking like a missionary, which is something I've always felt uh, God was calling me to. Um, that's one of the primary ways I think as a pastor, as a missionary in culture. And so when I use the word missional, I typically mean, how do I take the unchanging truth of the gospel into a changing cultural context without compromising the gospel, but engaging that culture with the relevancy of the gospel. We don't make the gospel relevant. It's already relevant. And our job is to show people how it is relevant uh, in their lives. And so what I've seen over the last kind of, you know, 10 years that I've been in ministry are kind of three outworkings on a popular level. One, one first one that I love um, and I have loved for a while is James Davidson Hunter. Um, he wrote a book called To Change the World. And really that book just helped me get a better handle on uh, how to go about living faithfully as a Christian in society. It's a great book, highly recommend it, fairly dense and academic, but I really enjoy it. And his basic idea of, if he were to use the word missional, which I don't think he does, his basic idea is he, we should be a faithful presence within. We should stay faithful within society, within a post-Christian culture. We just kind of keep our head down, keep moving forward, and don't cause too much of a scene, just be a faithful presence wherever God may have you. And I think that's a good uh, place. You know, if, if that's kind of your take, your understanding of what it means to be missional, I totally understand uh, that perspective. Another perspective that I've seen on kind of a popular level would be like Tim Keller or Andy Crouch. And kind of the, the idea is that we want to be co-creators and co-participants in God's common grace in society. And so you see people engaging missionally where they use slogans like in the city for the city, really championing that we're, we're about cultural engagement. And we're going to try to be co-collaborators with people around us to show that, look, we can engage winsomely with society. We can uh, participate in broader society as Christians and have a kind of a distinctive that we are Christians. But really, we're just going to try to exist in society and, uh, and accommodate where we can accommodate where we can in order to uh, lead to human flourishing. That would be kind of the second understanding, this outworking of missional that I've seen. And then the third kind of outworking of missional that's come online really in the last, um, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but popularized within the last four years, especially in kind of the age of Trump, where it's been really uh, disturbing, I guess, for, for many Christians, um, the presidency of Trump. And so that has led to a reaction from from another kind of uh, side, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But there's this idea in missional where we're not just called to passively kind of be a faithful presence, and we're not just called to um, be a co co creator with the world around us, but we're actually called to offer an alternative. Um, back when I was in college, I remember reading Shane Claiborne for the first time, and this was really his writing was really compelling to me at the time. I'd come out of a church tradition where there was very much a political alignment, kind of a religious right uh, culture. And so when I read Shane Claiborne, I was like, oh, this is like a new new way to operate in the world. And so this, this is almost monastic move. Um, and so that's, I recently read Rod Dreher's Live Not By Lies. That was promoted on a previous episode with Doug Groteis. We talked about that. Dr. Doug Groteis uh, shared with us kind of 
uh, his perspective. Uh, Roger also wrote the Benedict Option. And so this idea is that we need to form an alternative community to be missionally relevant. So instead of uh, being a faithful presence within, instead of being co-creators, we're going to create kind of this alternative community. And those are kind of three options that I've seen. I want to mention a fourth, though. Um, a fourth that I've been curious about is this, that the idea of missional is not just creating this kind of new monasticism. The idea of missional is not just winsomely engaging culture. And the idea of missional can't just be staying faithful within. There has to be an antithesis offered. And I was having a conversation with a friend about this the other day, that we as Christians must be inviting people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And that's that's inherently confrontational. And so what, what has been mission, missing from a lot of the missional conversation has been this idea that the mission of God, the Missio Dei, inherently confronts us, and not just us, but societies and nations. And this is uh, this is kind of one one person I've seen forward this kind of idea of missional, and I don't think he would use this word, is Doug Wilson, where his idea is, look, we're going to stand out there, we're going to put ourselves out there and say what we believe, we're not going to apologize for what we believe, and we're going to have fun, and we're going to invite people to almost engage uh, with us. And so you see Wilson interviewing all sorts of people, discussing uh, theology and culture with all sorts of people. And there's this idea that we're going to stand in the public square and we are going to be an alternate alternative presence, an alternative kind of community, because that's what the church is. But we're not just going to withdraw. Instead, we're going to engage and we're going to go go into that environment with with a bit of a backbone and and not be ashamed of of our beliefs. I have to confess that 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 option for me as of late has been very compelling, um, and I've I've been uh, really convicted on my own passivity and how I've led even my church sometimes into option two. And this is where I want to uh, critique option two. Um, option two seems to be the most popular. That's the one by uh, Andy Crouch and Tim Keller that we can just be co-creators. We can engage winsomely with the society around us, and that's going to go well for the world. Um, the values of option, option two are kind of threefold, as I've seen them play out. One, option two promotes that we want to keep the peace with the culture, and, and we can give up ground in order to accommodate the culture around us. So if we need to give up some religious liberties, or we need to give up some, some fights or some definitions of, of whatever it may be, marriage or anything else, then that's okay as long as we keep the peace. Keeping the peace is more important than winning. Um, and so that's a value for option two that I've seen. The second value for option two that I've seen is we need to be nice above all that we take verses. Option two will take verses from the Bible that talk about, you know, they'll know us by our love. And so if we come across as, uh, fighting for the gospel and for religious liberty or other things like that, well, that would be a mistake because that wouldn't appear to be loving to the watching world. And so being nice above all, if we're not nice, then we failed missionally in option two. Option two, also the third value they have is we don't want to draw attention to the parts of Christianity that are in contradiction with culture. And so the parts of Christianity that make people uncomfortable, make a secular society uncomfortable, we're just not going to draw as much attention. In fact, we're going to try to kind of hide those for later. You know, when the Old Testament talks about genocide or in the, when the Bible talks about abortion, or when the Bible talks about homosexuality, we're just not going to discuss those things 
because that's not going to win people to Christ. Instead, we're going to, uh, what Keller proposes, we're going to float an A doctrine on a B doctrine. And so we're going to engage the world on their terms first. So we're going to engage uh, talking about things that secular people uh, care about, uh, justice, uh, the environment, things like that. And then eventually we're hoping that we can unroll kind of the whole biblical scope um, in order to introduce them to Christianity. And so those three values I've seen really play out all sorts of places. I think they're they're widely promoted and held to be values and in, in how uh, institutions like Christianity Today, Gospel Coalition uh, articulate our faith in the public square. So those three values, again, were keep the peace uh, with culture by giving up ground, uh, be nice above all, and don't draw attention to the parts of Christianity which contradict uh, secular society. And so I think this option is woefully misguided. Um, it's an option that I've personally uh, kind of used to to really engage with the with culture and with society. And it's a way that I've led for a while. And I'm really not just second guessing it. I'm willing calling. I'm actually calling into question the very values it holds as consistent with a faithful biblical engagement in the public square. I think that for many people who hold to this option too, and, and broader evangelicalism, there's you see almost this sentiment where it's it's as if they want persecution and they're eager for persecution, not that they're just okay with it. Like we see in the New Testament that persecution is, is, is a healthy uh, reaction from society against God's people to form them, and God can use persecution to shape his people. But instead, what we see is almost this idea of like persecution is inherently good. It's not just a, a, an effect of our engagement, but it's something that we should crave. And so you see Christians suggest that persecution is, is something that we should pursue um, in the sense that like we should give up uh, any God-given rights because that, that will actually increase our witness as we become persecuted will look better. And we, they typically, American Christians will point to places like China where the persecuted church is growing and, and kind of exploding over there. And they'll see, see, look, those people are being persecuted and they're better Christians than us. Um, and, and it really makes me sad because I, I believe that m this is a well-intended argument, but it's a really poor argument. Um, the reason is because it, it becomes a masochistic per pursuit of persecution, where Christians start just pursuing persecution, abandoning God-given rights, abandoning a kind of a, a cultural engagement in the name of some kind of pietistic persecution that will somehow make the world a better place. And I don't believe that pursuing persecution is uh, is what God wants for us. I think pursuing God and representing God faithfully is what God wants, and that will lead to persecution. But I don't think somehow giving up or, or accommodating culture or, um, you know, just relinquishing certain convictions or beliefs we have as Orthodox Christians is a wise way to go about the world simply because uh, we think it'll lead to greater persecution, which will lead to greater piety, and therefore we're better Christians. I think that's uh, woefully misguided. Um, I think it's problematic for a lot of reasons, but I think one of the main uh, reasons is because I don't think we realize where the ideas in secular society are coming from, and we underestimate their potency. So we underestimate their potency because we've picked option two. We view kind of this idea that we can engage the world as co-collaborators and co-creators with the world around us. 
in a, in a really a way that's almost childish and it's naive naivete. So it's it's an idea that we can just engage with the world as peers and we can compromise and things are going to lead to better human flourishing because of that. Um, unfortunately, the reason I think this is misguided is we're not compromising with a view of the world that's compatible with Christianity. So when I compromise with my wife about where we're going to go to dinner or what, what we're going to watch on TV or, or even a parenting decision, how we're going to discipline or lead our kids well, when I compromise with my wife, we are peers, we're equals, we love one another, we're operating from the same worldview, we're using the Bible as the foundation of our marriage and parenting. When we compromise with, with the world around us in a way that, um, that views it as equal with Christianity, uh, equally valid as a worldview with Christianity, we've made a fatal mistake. A secular worldview, when I use that word, I always chuckle to myself in my head because it reminds me of Arrested Development. There's an episode uh, where this woman who's a Christian uh, goes, and uh, and I forget the main character's name, Bluth, um, goes to him and says, teach me the ways of the secular world. And so this word secular can, can easily become kind of a boogeyman within Christianity uh, that makes no sense. And so I want to define that. When I say secular, what I mean is the idea that the world can exist without God. The world is fine without God. We can create institutions and societies that have no need of God. Um, a great example of secularity would be the French Revolution, where they declared secularism as kind of a state religion. And so there was great bloodshed and removal of temples. Instead of uh, churches, they were turned into temples to secularism. And so it's this idea that we can have a society uh, that doesn't just not need God, but is almost anti-God. And what we're doing many times when we embrace option two missionally is we're assuming too much of the world around us in terms of commonality. And I, I think that really uh, creates a lot of problems because the secular worldview has taken on postmodernism and relativism. Uh, these ideas are pervasive within our society. Um, and really, this is where we get into the topic of linguistics. It's a key reality. Uh, Postmodernism post is a deconstructionist pursuit in its endeavor. Um, I think there's redeemable things. I'm actually, my book coming out next year is going to highlight some of those redeemable things within postmodernism, where I think it can offer uh, key insights that, that uh, kind of a fundamentalist perspective um, mis uh, mistakes. And, and really, it, it's a helpful corrective to uh, modernity's assumption that there's just brute facts apart from God. Um, so I think it can be useful, but I think it's woefully misguided to underestimate uh, postmodernism as something that's just neutral. Uh, it's not. And you see it clearly when it plays out in linguistics. So linguistics is the study of language. What words mean? You get uh, Dorita saying that we define meaning as use. Um, and that the meaning of words is no longer concrete. It's no longer, we're no longer looking for dictionary definitions to have discussions and argumentation. Instead, they're very subjective and relativistic. Um, the, pr the reason that this happens is because definitions become almost uh, a powerful way to reinforce power. So if we have definitions of words and in, in a common understanding and a common language, then all of a sudden there's accountability then there's all of a sudden we, we have to engage one another in conversation. Instead, what we have is a great unraveling, as proposed by post-modernity, where language becomes 
relativistic, where definitions don't matter. Um, the default in post postmodernism is disorder. Um, one example of postmodernism playing out today, and you may have heard this concept uh, in society and churches. The Southern Baptist uh, Convention is really trying to deal with this concept. Um, and and I like to joke. I I grew up Southern Baptist. Um, and I, I say I like watching Southern Baptist drama like like my wife watch, watches The Bachelorette. Uh, it's just, it's curious to me because it's like what I grew up in. I'm no longer Southern Baptist. Um, but they're really trying to wrestle with this idea of critical race theory. Res a resolution was passed last year uh, proposing it as a useful instrument to understand race. Um, and so critical race theory really grew up in legal discourse um, out of postmodernity. And so there's this whole movement from Foucault to postmodernism and then different streams of thought, critical race theory just being one of them. Um, and you get different streams of thought that are posing deconstructionist views of society. And so the goal of critical race theory and other postmodern philosophies is not just to ask questions. And this is where we're misguided. It's not just asking questions about power and, and hegemony. It's actually attempting to dismantle reality and replace it with a new reality. This is where you see Christians trying to accommodate this by putting preferred pronouns in their profiles, and they're trying to adopt the language of society around them so that they can show, look, we can be co-collaborators, we can be relevant with you, we can speak your language. And I think this is a fatal mistake uh, for Christian, for faithful Christian witness. Um, critical race theory doesn't just ask who has been hurt and who is oppressed. It's replacing reality with a new reality that is nihilistic, chaotic, and frankly, anti-God. Now, with that said, I have friends who have been trained in critical race theory, who um, have found it useful. I have uh, fellow pastors who may use some of the language of critical race theory and, and other disciplines like that. And I understand why I get it. And I'm friends with them. So like I have no ill will towards them. But I do believe it's incredibly foolish when we use it uh, just wholesale. Um, do I think that people can benefit from exploring some of the questions asked by critical race theory? Sure. I would point you to John Piper's uh, podcast on critical race theory. I think it's a great uh, resource. He did a podcast where he talked about, look, it can be useful to really just ask questions in a different way. Do I think that we should start using the term microaggression in our worship songs? Absolutely not. No. Like that, that's foolishness. Um, and it, it, I know that it comes from a place of wanting to show that we can speak the language of the world around us. I just think it's very misguided. And it's, it's led to another reaction, however. And that overreaction, that counterreaction is Trumpism. Uh, recently, there was a rally in Washington, D.C. And boy, did that sound like a dumpster fire. Because you've got people up there with uh, ram's horn that's red, white, and blue. Uh, and they're blowing the ram's horn, signifying that the great arrival of the Messiah Trump is coming. And then you've got this weird uh, kind of commingling of like advertisements on the screen from my pillow guy. Uh, I didn't watch it. I just heard about all this from Roger Rare on uh, the American conservative uh, website. And you have these Christians gathered around Trump as if he's some sort of deliverer as if he's some sort of moral guardian, some guardian of truth, some protector of Christianity. Um, this too is wildly misguided. And it is it is a reaction, I think, to the incoherency of postmodernism. And so you've, you, you've got kind of this counter reaction with Trumpism to kind of this, uh, this 
over-realized critical race theory in society. And I think the issue of Trumpism has been a long time coming within the church. Um, I, you know, I grew up in, in, in a church where for the 4th of July, we'd have a special America service where we sang patriotic songs and had a big American flag. And, and that directly to me leads to Trumpism. That's just right, right, setting the path for people to end up worshiping a country and end up worshiping a person other than Jesus. When we introduce that stuff into churches, um, it's been a long time coming. And I think it's dumb. Um, I think that we can honor the country we're in. We can be patriotic in the country we're in. Um, there's a huge debate right now in, in some Christian circles about nationalism because the, uh, the kind of big rally, whatever that was, I wish I had the name of it. The big rally in DC was viewed as nationalistic. And I think that Jill Lepore's book on nationalism is really helpful to understand nationalism. Um, I, I prefer to use the word patriotic, and I think we can appreciate uh, the United States as, as a gift to the world in a sense that that it was formed out of a out of a Judeo Christian worldview, and it's led to human flourishing for many people, not all people, as critical race theory helpfully sometimes points out. But in general, we can be appreciative of the nation we find ourselves in without creating these worship services, without creating disciples that uh, are really confused. A lot of disciples that have conflated God in country and sometimes even mistaken uh, and put God in country in a sense that is really unbiblical. Worshiping the United States as some kind of second Israel, uh, it's, just, it's just so not just concerning, it's evil and it's wrong. I think instead, the church should be building a new civilization, a kingdom, if you will, to use Jesus's language, and inviting people to join that kingdom. And this is why I view option two is so weak. It doesn't offer an alternative, but it just seeks relevance by pandering to talking points. The reality is Christ came to conquer nations. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he said to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And when he uses that word make, that's not a suggestion. It's a command. We are to make disciples. There's this idea in modern evangelicalism that if we're just winsome enough and clever enough and coy and nice, that somehow that's going to win an audience for Christ. And instead, I believe as Christians, we should be defending Christianity. We should be representing Christianity in a faithful way in the public square that we offer an, a vision of alternative kingdom that is not Trumpism and that is not based on racial discrimination, which I believe critical race theory is, but instead it offers an alternative reality because Christ came to rule the nations. That's why uh, there's Christmas songs about that, about the son of God become man, uh, the conquering king. I think personally and this is just my my take. I think many Christians are scared to offer their thoughts on current issues because they don't want to sound like their granddad who watches Fox News on like volume 100. And and I have I had one of those before he passed away. Um where where it just becomes kind of this religious right attitude where we're just against uh society we 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 go into these talking points of right and left and we try to identify with one. Um and I think as Christians we we saw what that did in the 90s, at least I as a millennial saw what they did in the 90s, and saw that what that did when I went to university and, and saw people who weren't Christians, 
and they identified Christianity with the religious right. And I think today, unfortunately, I think many many non-Christians would identify Christianity with Trumpism. And, and I understand why we would not engage in the public square with a strong biblical backbone. I get that. However, we shouldn't shrink back just because somebody messed up somewhere along the way. We should look to be more faithful and more biblically faithful and theologically uh, deep with how we engage in the public square. Just because the religious right or other groups have misrepresented Christianity does not mean we should fail to represent Christianity at all in the public square. And so for me, one of the biggest frustrations and why I felt this season has been already lonely enough, but why I felt as a pastor, theologian, incredibly lonely is because many of the people that I respect in, in seminaries and other institutions have been largely silent on a lot of these issues. Um, now, I know for many Christians, they're, they're working from option two, which is they should be silent because being silent keeps the peace. I don't think that's a wise choice. I just don't. I don't think that's that's going to help the church flourish. I don't think that's going to help uh, Christ conquer the nation, so to speak. I think that we need to speak up about uh, issues of religious liberty, about a Christian worldview, and we need to offer the gospel uh, to people first and foremost. For me, I'm on the front lines of ministry, trying to serve people, love people. Some of you who are listening go to my church, and I'm trying to represent Christ faithfully in a changing cultural context. And I feel like the artillery has been completely silent, that we've got all these big, uh, deep thinkers who are older and wiser than me, and they're not offering their thoughts because they're afraid of being perceived as someone who's religious right or Trumper or whatever this is. Um, and that that leaves me on the front lines of ministry, kind of starting a podcast and doing other things because no one else seems to be speaking up on these issues. This kind of leads me into the final topic I want to discuss today. And that topic is eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times when we talk about the Bible. Or we talk about revelation typically, but there's lots of passages in the Bible that deal with eschatology and how we're going to interpret the end times. And I think that our missional understanding uh, is very much infused with our eschatological convictions, meaning that how we view the end of time and revelation in other places is going to shape how we engage here and now today missionally. Um, think about it. If you truly believe that when Jesus comes back, he's going to burn up the earth, it's all going away, that there's a great rapture, that our bodies are, are not important, our souls are what are most important, that the material world is not that important, which is what I kind of heard growing up in Christianity, then, then environmentalism makes no sense to you. Why? Because the environment, the built environment, the world, the created order, the material world is second class to the immaterial, the soul, the spirit, and what God actually saves in that, in that understanding. Eschatology directly shapes how you live your life today. And so I want to talk about eschatology and really kind of a couple options and what I'm exploring lately. Um, not where I've arrived, what I'm exploring lately. So there's kind of three options and, and, Christian eschatology, and you can get into a lot of different things, especially if you're dispensational. There's a lot of charts that are out there for you to explore. But the three options, one is premillennialism, meaning that Jesus is going to come back and then there's going to be a thousand year, a literal thousand year rule and reign of, of Christ on earth as the king. So pre, before, pre meaning before that millennium. Then there's amillennialism, which views uh, Revelation in the thousand years is metaphorical mainly, that we kind of currently live within that thousand years. The thousand years isn't so literal. It's it's more 
metaphorical. And so you'll hear this from, from even myself and some of my sermons where I've said, you know, uh, right now we currently live in the already, not yet, that Christ is currently king, but he's coming again one day. And so the awe meaning that there's not really a millennium, um, but it's more symbolic. And then you get post-millennialism. Post-millennialism means that, the, that there's a thousand years now, and it's going to lead to a culmination of Jesus's eventual return. And so Jesus's return will kind of culminate as his kingdom expands and grows throughout the world. Now, this third option is the most interesting to me currently, and I want to explain why, because I think you might conclude the opposite based on current events. Postmillennialism actually has some historical weight to it in historical theology. Uh, people like Edwards and other people, um, when the world was advancing and growing um, and Christianity was going around the globe, kind of on the back of colonialism. Um, and so you kind of saw this hopeful attitude that the world is going to, everyone in the world is going to know Jesus. We're going to expand Christianity throughout the world. And then Jesus will return. And then the 20th century hit, the bloodiest century on record, um, a lot of which was because of uh, ideas like postmodernity and uh, Marxism and, and uh, n- nationalism and Nazism, all, this, all these kind of isms uh, apart from Christ. And then premillennialism became interesting and more prominent. Why? Because the idea in that is that almost the world is going to get harder and harder, and then Jesus is going to return. So as people saw the bloodiest century on record, uh, they started to go, you know what? The world isn't getting better. It's getting worse. All of a sudden we have nukes and that doesn't seem good. And so the world is going to get worse and worse. And then Jesus is going to come back. Um, and a lot of me and my my friends that I know that are pastors have embraced amillennialism because we view, view both of those as almost too simplistic. I've been amillennial uh, for a while. Um, Kingdom Come by Sam Storms has been influential for me in that. However, here's where post-millennialism is compelling to me currently. Um, and I'm sure some of my friends who are all-mill are going to send me an email or something and, and try to bring me back to the straight and narrow. That's totally fine. But here's why it's at least compelling. I believe, and when the Bible suggests and, and teaches that Jesus came to rule and reign, and when the Bible suggests that we have hope that can't be taken away, and that that Paul says in Romans that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. I believe that leads us to have a disposition that is inherently optimistic. This is hard for me. I am I am cynical. Um, you can call me a realist. I, I think that would be more accurate. But that's just kind of my default posture. And so optimism has been something I've had to learn. And I've learned it biblically. And I've learned it relationally from friends that have taught me that Christianity is inherently optimistic. It, it, it Im- imbues you with hope. Why? Because Jesus is returning and Jesus currently rules and reigns right now. There's no Trump or Biden that is, that is out of the rule and reign and under the authority of Jesus Christ in a sense, in a real sense. And so if that is the reality of Christianity, that we are more than conquerors, that Christ came to conquer the nations, and that we have a hope that can't be taken away. Well, boy, that leads me to a Christianity that is incredibly hope-filled and incredibly optimistic for where the gospel can go. Instead of this kind of, uh, woe is me, persecuted church, 
kind of worship masochistic Christianity where we need the world to get worse and worse so Jesus can get back can come back. Instead, we engage the world with the truth of the gospel in a way that is unashamedly optimistic, that doesn't hold punches, that doesn't pull punches on what we believe, that the created order is the standard for all people in terms of gender and sexuality and how God made the world is good, that the material world is good, and he came to redeem all things to himself. There is no doubt in my mind that Jesus is going to rule and reign. Well, gosh, that is a very different perspective, and that makes my day-to-day life very different than, than how I used to think. And here's, here's what I'm getting at. With amillennialism, we can kind of stand back and we get to like st- uh, stand above and beyond both. We get to kind of critique both sides, that neither of them have the answer. We get to kind of settle into this, who knows anyways, Revelation's really tricky. I don't know what these beasts represent. Therefore, you know, uh, I'm just going to critique both sides and just say Jesus come back one day. And I get that. I think that's, that's okay in some sense. And I, I've, I've taught that way. My conviction, though, is I'm seeing uh, the amillennial perspective in eschatology shape churches and pastors who are culturally disengaged, who just don't really have a lot of backbone to speak out on biblical truth. Um, instead, they, they kind of want to pander and are easily swayed into deviant ide- ideologies that are, that are contrary to Christianity. I know for a lot of my friends who are millennials, we want a kind of pure, perfect candidate movement ideology in this world, and we're not going to find it. Every single one is not perfect. Jesus is the perfect one. There's this expectation that we should be able to have pure and perfect alignment with a political party or candidate. And really, I think that's not just uh, a poor a poor idea to have. It's a, it's a manifestation of of this modern idealism that we can find perfection on this earth. And it's a modern individualization where we believe one person or one party we can, we can completely identify with. Um, And I I think that's not true at all. I think that that comes from a a modern conception of self rather than uh, a biblical conception of engagement with the world. I think it's also a manifestation of the desire to belong um, I think many of us who are searching for belonging need to find our belonging in Jesus Christ and his church, uh, because there's no such thing as a pure movement. There's just not, as in a, like a movement without error on this earth. Um, you see all sorts of attempts to make movements of purity, movements that are pure, whether they're for reform, conservatism, progressivism. The problem with these pure movements, where there's no kind of, uh, where it's very black and white, and there's not a lot of gray, is it it inherently must purge those who are not pure or perfect. Um, and I, I believe this is why we as Christians have the hope of the world and the church. Uh, and why I personally believe strict re- regenerate church membership is not just unrealistic, but ultimately impossible. The church on this side of heaven is to be an outpost of the invisible church, the pure church, the bride of Christ, made holy not because we're so great and we're so holy, but because our holiness is derivative from Jesus Christ himself. And so... We are the movement that is pure in Jesus Christ. It's derivative. The holiness of Jesus Christ is given to us. And then we work out our salvation in the public square, knowing that as we participate in this world, as we walk this life, there's movements and ideologies afoot, and none of them are pure, and none of them are perfect. But disengagement, 
I don't think is a wise option. I think we need to be uh, intelligently engaged with the world around us based on the reality that we already belong to the purest, the only pure movement, really, the, the Church of Jesus Christ, by whom we derive our purity, our righteousness from Jesus Christ himself. Um, all these movements, Trumpism, uh, leftism, whatever you want to call the different movements in our world, they're searching for right righteousness, and righteousness is found in Jesus Christ himself. And so I think that's the way I want to kind of close out the episode. Uh, hopefully this has been helpful content for you. I'd love to hear from you if you enjoyed this content, um, because I typically want to bring in other people who can say hard things or maybe offer their opinions, uh, because there's lots of people that are smarter than me, and I want to bring them to you so that you can hear from them and learn from them. Um, but I'll probably do another one of these episodes at the conclusion of next season. Um, like I said, we're going to launch next season, January, February, 2021. I've also got a book coming out uh, in the next few months. And so that book is actually going to touch on at least one of the topics that we've talked about today. It's going to talk about postmodernism and it's going to use John Frame's triperspectivalism to show how postmodernism can be uh, really useful but not, we don't need to go overboard on postmodernism. And so uh, that book is supposed to be a helpful way forward to make disciples in this world, really engage in the work of James K. Smith and others, um, and how we uh, how we make disciples inform people. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoyed this season, I would, I would invite you to do a couple things. Give us a great rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's available on a lot of different platforms. Uh, share the podcast with a friend. Pick an episode that you would find interesting to have a phone call about later with that friend and send it to him and say, hey, we should chat about it, this topic later. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, you should subscribe to the channel, uh, click the bell icon so you can be notified when uh, the next season starts in January, February. And I'm really looking forward to next season. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I love Acts 29 and the network I'm part of, and I'm really excited to bring you guys in that network who are thinking deeply about Christianity uh, and really kind of promoting a Christian worldview from a place of deep, deep intellectual engagement. So uh, until then, I will see you next time.